you have no product. You have no website. Now, imagine trying to land press coverage for your company. This is sort of where Rebecca Corliss found herself in early 2017 when pitching journalists for coverage on Awa Labs and their vision. Corliss had recently left HubSpot after eight years. She joined HubSpot early, when the marketing team was like five people operating in survival mode. Now she found herself in a similar but much different position at Awa Labs. A video conferencing software, yes, but also a hardware with an actual video conferencing camera. It's 2019 now, and yes, they have a product and a website. So how did they climb out of survival mode and what are their ambitions now? This is Ground Up. It's a podcast about growth, except without all the numbers. Here, we tell the stories of everything behind the numbers, the ideas, the habits, the discipline, and also the personal and professional growth of some of the smartest marketers and business owners that we know. I'm John Benini, and I'm your host. What is super interesting is you've been an early marketer now at two companies, right? HubSpot, mm-hmm. you, how big were they when you joined HubSpot? 45 people. 45 people. I can't even imagine <laughs> <laughs> HubSpot being that small. I and know. Then, and then Owl Labs was smaller, right? Yeah, 17. So you've been an early marketer now at two companies, although you just said Owl Labs has crossed the threshold of where HubSpot was when you joined them, employee count-wise. Yep. yep. Um, so is there anything that you have found to be transposable from your experience in the early days at HubSpot to the early days at Owl Labs? Oh my goodness, so many things. I mean, for me, I mean, the main reason that I really wanted to join a company like Owl Lab, I mean, there's many reasons, but the main reason in terms of size is I saw such an awesome journey at HubSpot going from, my goodness, like the eight, over the eight and a half years from 45 folks to I don't know, pushing 1500 or so is I saw a great movie and I really wanted to see the prequel. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to see the prequel. Uh, HubSpot was uh, uh, series B when I joined and I wanted to see an A-Sage company. And so I I knew there were lessons that I would want to experience that I hadn't yet. And I knew that I could use the movie to use that metaphor again that I had watched at HubSpot and use that to build my own marketing department, my own marketing strategy, my own marketing team. Right. So those are two of the theses, theses that I was using, if you will, to do that. So just to level set, what did the marketing team look like at HubSpot when you joined? Yeah, so it was a group of five. Um, shout out to my girl, Ellie Merman. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, it was a scrappy group that we just lived month to month in terms of experiments. Um, and so it wasn't really, didn't really have formulaic roles on the marketing team. Remember we were, webinars were just a twinkling in our eye <laughs> as a strategy back right. then. So we were dabbling in webinars, we were dabbling in content. I remember this really groundbreaking idea that Mike Volpe had that we should start putting calls to action on our blog posts. That was groundbreaking. <laughs> pioneers, like, right. Pioneers, my goodness. So like that that's an example, that's an experiment, which is funny to say that we did at the time. And so um, I would say, but what was beginning to happen at that time was a split to uh, have half of our group focus on yeah. Uh, we didn't call it MoFu and Tofu at the time, but really traffic driving strategies and conversion driving strategies. So that was that was the trend that was happening at that time. And um, 
while our roles weren't necessarily formalized, we were thinking about how we were going to uh, focus on each. So that was the trend at that moment. But largely content driven, right? I mean, was there a lot of paid spend at that time? No, not at all. Not at all. It was really content driven. I mean, I mean, that's HubSpot's bread and butter. Um, and so uh, the majority of the experience, the experiments we were running was how we build our content engine, um, working with Rick Burns at that time, my goodness, um, really building our blog and really building our content and things like that. So yeah, but so a lot of the traffic was all was all organic and content. Right. And then the team kind of grew from there. Uh, early on, like it, it makes sense, right? You, you had a lot of generalists, as you say, on the marketing team at HubSpot. Mm-hmm. Um, I would assume the the tactics and the approach could change at any time. So it was probably good to have people that were versatile, right? People that could write content, people that could host webinars, people that could sing in music videos, right? In very important skill. <laughs> <laughs> right. Very, very versatile group. Have you taken that approach in the early days of our labs to to building your own marketing team? A hundred percent. So in joining Owl Labs, let's see. So I was the first full marketer working with my colleague and also former HubSpotter, Karen Rubin. Really, she and I were the go-to-market team. And so very, very early, I mean, I consider myself a generalist for sure. And so we just tried everything. And then the first two folks that joined our team, I would say, are just super scrappy experimental generalists. Shout out to my girl, Erin Fratelos, who was one of the first early members of our team. And so it was really great that we were just kind of heavy hitters in general um, to just experiment because we didn't know what the long-term strategy would be. Everything we did was from scratch. I mean, when I joined the company, we were in stealth. No one knew who we are, that we existed. No one knew hardware wasn't wasn't out there yet in the market. Nope, nope. We launched our company, Owl Labs, in May of 2017, and then we launched our product in June of 2017, (laughs) starting completely from scratch. So we had no idea what was going to work. So it was just really important to be very flexible. and so from there, it's all, we were a team of then three um, for like the full, really through the end of 2018. And it wasn't until this year, 2019, when we actually started right. really growing. We, we had done enough experiments that we knew where we had relatively strong conviction of where we wanted to um, start um, start investing and what what experts, if you will, we wanted to start sure. bringing onto the team. Um, but we didn't do that until until really this year. So what was like, what was similar in terms of the approach comparing to HubSpot? Like uh, maybe was, was there a, a big emphasis on content? Uh, so first part of the question is what was the same? And then maybe what was different or new to you? Um, and maybe something you hadn't experienced coming in. Sure. So first, uh, I was very deliberate that I did not want to use the HubSpot playbook I knew and just use it from scratch. I, I wanted, because everything was so new, I right. wanted to make sure that I was being being honest and experimental being and just questioning, things, right. of, questioning right. of everything. So content was not first. Um, we started with, uh, so we're a hardware company, we're an e-com sale. Yeah. Um, and so we started with, with a mix of PR channels, with a mix of partnerships, um, Things, some paid, dabbling in paid newsletters, things of that variety. So t- talk and- to me about PR, though, when you're in stealth mode, <laughs> right? You, you don't have a product. Contradict? Nobody knows who you are, right? Like, how do you pitch people? Uh, question. You pitch them on the uh, dream, right? Pitch them on the dream. So I actually decided to do our 
coming out of stealth um, in that May as PR PR campaign number one and the product is PR campaign number two. And uh, who's funny, I remember being interviewed by the Boston Business Journal when we were coming out of stealth. And they're like, so what is your product going to be? And we're like, <laughs> we're, we're not sharing yet. They're like, what? And they still wrote about us, but we really, we pitched on, on vision. Um, we pitched on, um, the, the leadership team. Right. So here we are, Karen Rubin, myself and Max McKeith and Mark Schnittman, both from iRobot. So a really interesting mix of HubSpot and iRobot blood. And so we pitched, we pitched on that and the vision and, um, playing in the space where we were going to really change how people were meeting and change the, for the future of work for the better and things like that. And so we got a lot of interest. And then I would say with our product launch, um, uh, we actually, our play, our investor, our seed investor playground actually did us an amazing solid and made a direct intro with a reporter from the verge who did cover our launch. And oh, I, nice. mean, I mean it true blue that the verge launched our product. <laughs> the verge article launched your product. It did. And so using in, in that case, I mean, you're, you're totally right on the money. We didn't have, we didn't have a brand yet, but we right. had resources. We, at that stage, you have your brain, you have your scrappiness and you have your resources and you just do your best. And so that was an instance in which we took advantage of those right, you're things. Playing off the experience of the founding team or the executives out of there. And then the vision, exactly. Uh, exactly. something, yeah, something that, something that, uh, other people can't match, right? Uh, it's going to be a unique pitch no matter, no matter what. Um, the other challenge too, in coming in in stealth mode is you didn't have a lot of historical context, right? Or historical data to go off of knowing what worked, right? Cause the product wasn't even, wasn't even out there yet. So Nothing. coming in, how did, how did your team determine priorities? Right. I mean, I know you mentioned testing and experimentation, but there's there's also logic behind that, too. So how did you determine the priorities of the marketing team when you really didn't have a lot of historical data to go off of? Yeah, not only did we not have historical data, we didn't have a website. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tough to have data. Yeah. <laughs> um, so my first week, my first week, I remember coming in saying like, OK, we knew we were going to come out of stealth a few weeks later. And we needed a website. And then the question is a website based off of what? Right. And so I would say one thing that had been really thoughtfully done, which was the vision of the product and uh, the mission of the company. That Those were crystal clear and really were the reason why I joined. I love this idea of of really changing the way people work together. That That is just so exciting to me. So we had that. And so my first week, believe it or not, John, I created the brand, which is such a funny <laughs> thing to say. I made a PowerPoint using my best judgment and conviction to the best of my ability to build a brand and then worked with a group to build our site. And then it's all based off of judgment and prior experience and right. just doing your best and knowing that at this stage, you're just stifling yourself if you're trying to get it right, because the only thing you know for sure is you're not going to get it right because you have no data. It's going to change, right? It's going to change. So have anything, just start. And so that was that was really the approach. And then using, it's funny, then using my judgment of, okay, we're, we're a product, really product-driven company, I think credibility that comes from media is going to be supportive, which is why PR was thus the initial emphasis. Sure. And then what's really funny and probably is no surprise to you, it was extremely difficult to maintain our traffic. Oh, sure. Because <laughs> yeah, you didn't have anything sustainable. You didn't have a blog. You didn't, yeah. 
nothing. <laughs> so no surprise here. So I was very thankful to stumble upon that naturally and just like get get evidence from the other side of the of the HubSpot story, if you will. Right, and right. So that's when I said, okay, using my experience, let's start investing in content. Let's start, let's start building this engine. And actually the first content initiative we did was our first ever state of remote work report. So I remember that. Right. Yeah. And that did, was extremely successful. Also helped us get press, but also helped us get links and also gave us fodder for content long-term. And so we did that um, a few months shortly after launching completely. And that was really the beginning of our content engine. So to back up for a second, when you said building the brand, you know, you put together this slide deck, what does that mean exactly? Like positioning, vision, what our messaging is, that kind of thing? To me, in that moment, it was a, I'm going to call it a collage mood board of imagery. <laughs> that's actually a really good way to describe it, though. That's, that, yeah. That's, a mood board. Of, that's, that's a brand. Exactly. <laughs> of imagery that I thought, because this was in order to create a website design, um, that I thought could represent us and mimic the, the feeling that I knew, that we already knew that came from our mission. So obviously, we're very inclusive organization so which imagery that shows inclusive we're very human we're all about using this product technology to improve human connection so what feels human and then honestly i mean i know you can't those listening can't see my glasses right now but it's really (laughs) funny my favorite color is teal so why not make that your brand color (laughs) (laughs) oh there you go the 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 color of your glasses there you go we're getting we're getting all the behind the scenes yeah we're getting the scoop here the the uh the how-to for building a brand um, yeah, be, be an early hire and just, yeah, then you get to influence based on your, your own taste. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. so, all right. So you come in obviously building the brand and, and, and who, who our labs is going to be and, and vision and messaging and that kind of thing. Super important. Next step. It sounds like was investing in content, right? Because you kind of saw firsthand, you're probably getting really good spikes from the verge article or any other PR that you were able to scrape together. Uh, but then you said, like, like you said, it dropped off. So mm-hmm. you started investing in content and what did that look like? Because it, uh, I remember uh, seeing some content from you. It was either on the site or maybe even on Medium uh, about remote work. You kind of stirred up some controversy a little bit too. I remember there oh, being yeah. some debate around this Medium post you 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 put out based on like, I, I forget the exact angle, but it was like, is is remote work basically? Like the, the theme of it was like, is remote work like... Is it is it the way to go, right? Like, yeah, is it the future? I base I think the headline was uh, "Remote work is not the future" or something to that effect. Like something very intentionally, like poking poking at that idea that I thought right. would be controversial. And that was an example of using content that I thought was thus really shareable and using a bit of my own personal brand at that at that time. Um, and because I'm probably making people very curious about why a company that is 100% supportive of remote work. <laughs> Making has hardware to yeah exactly to, <laughs> yeah. to make more inclusive meetings more inclusive exactly but anyway but the angle um so one of our really core brand tenants and ideas is the round of yes there's remote work but there's also this concept of the hybrid team right and that's a really core tenant of our our content and our mission and it's that it's not just thinking about remote work and remote workers that's a piece of the pie and it's actually thinking about how can we create a world in which your work location is completely irrelevant? So you can be you can be and work and thrive wherever that happens to be for you, whether it's in an office or not. So anyway, it was a very cheeky headline. <laughs> was it was your intent to be a little? Was was the intent to to stir up some controversy a little bit? 
hundred <laughs> percent. Well, it worked. Like for for those listening, look it up uh, uh, because I think I, I know the folks at Help Scout were were in the conversation. I think he, maybe even the guys at Base Camp. Yeah, got they're mad at me. Yeah, like it, and th- these are some spirited debates happening. Um, it was great. Yeah, yeah, and it it worked well, right? Because a lot of people were were had Owl Labs top of mind. Um, yeah, was- so yeah, that that's an interesting way to kick off the content. Like you're showing people this is how you write content. Um, <laughs> So as a marketing team, though, so when you start, you start diving into content, you said you're going to prioritize content. How do you go about like, what, what were the goals of the team? When you're in that experimental phase, you're not really sure what's going to work. You, you know, kind of what you need, right? You need traffic, you need, you need purchases. Uh, what, how did you go about goal setting as a, as a marketing team? Yeah, so I take my goal setting technique uh, 100% from the school of Mike Fulpe which is what is possible yet slightly out of reach. Uh, that, <laughs> uh, I, I, I believe that thoroughly because by doing that, especially when you don't have historic data right. yet, yeah. by doing that, it puts you in a mindset to be much more inventive than if you were to just set something 100% achievable. Uh, and so with that, and, and specifically, I guess, from a content standpoint, it was really from a traffic driving standpoint, basically, what type of traffic could we get? Um, you, we started with what would be nice, like, I, I'm a funnel marketer through and through, I yeah. live by the funnel. And it was okay, we know that these are the sales that we need to get. Um, what do we think the sales conversion possibly could be? Um, by that point, we had some historic conversion data. And then it's okay, what traffic do we need to achieve? in order to make that possible. And then what's a little more than that. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and we thought, especially when building our engine, we thought about content in two different ways, like medium and your onsite blog are like the perfect two, two um, descriptions for that medium is using content to drive a new audience in the moment because it has that social aspect to it. And then your blog content is, is, is creating your building blocks or creating your building blocks to really create a sustainable traffic um, source long-term. So we were investing in both at the same time, knowing one could help us now, right. one could help us later. And right. medium was like your distribution okay. network. It was like Twitter in a sense. And exactly. your website, you knew you weren't really going to see a short tail, uh, results from, right. But maybe in three months, six months, you'd start to build it up. That yeah. makes sense. And then we thought about um, just other distribution channels we could on top. Um, we've had awesome success with newsletters. I love newsletters. Oh, sponsoring newsletters? Sponsoring newsletters. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And what we would do, uh, uh, I'll give a, th- a shout out to my, my guys at Inside and Inside.com. Awesome newsletters. And what we would do is we'd learn, learn these newsletters. What type of content do they surface? What is their audience like? And then what kind of content do we either have already or could create that their audience would also love? And so we started doing that. And then we would get an additional paid push for our content Mm. through these newsletters um, in order to grow our audience that way. And that worked really, really well. And so so you can get pretty targeted, right? Because they have a huge repository of newsletters. Huge. It was awesome. And I mean, we started any interest basically, right? Any I mean, interest. Right. And now they can get super targeted um, depending on what you need before it wasn't even yeah. as targeted, but it was still really successful. So um, that worked really well again for like, because we needed to survive in the moment. And so that was the short term push we could get for our content that way too. Right. As you're kind of waiting for content to, you know, the organic side to pick up. Exactly. How much did like the overall vision, if at all, from like the founding team play into like the marketing team's ability to 
know what to prioritize and what to set goals around? Like, did that help inform it? Or was everyone um, kind of in this exploratory phase together? It didn't necessarily inform the priorities. It informed the brand. It informed the brand and the subject matter of our content and the space that we'd want to play in. Right. And fr from the very beginning, I mean, so we're at the end of the day, we're a conferencing camera for your meetings, right? There are plenty of those that you can choose from. But from the very beginning, we knew that we didn't want to just be another vendor creating a hardware product. We wanted to be an organization that was educating the world and supporting and supporting this movement alongside a solution that also supports it as alongside creating and selling a solution alongside. So that I think like the priority to have that be really core to our strategy that came from our co-founders and the initial mission and, uh, and really why I joined in the first place, because right. it's exciting. It's exciting to be a part of something like that, especially something you believe in so much. And I would assume that it, that helped inform the actual content you were putting out, right? I mean, Completely. the, uh, inclusiveness around remote workers, like all that supports the vision that you just talked about. Completely. Yeah, that's exactly right. So how is it, how is, how is this whole process evolved in what, roughly two years? Yeah. So, uh, the market, so back then it was just you and Karen. Yep. Karen you Rubin on marketing. So how, how big right. is your, how big is your team now? The marketing team? Yeah. So now, um, uh, I'll call it go to market broadly is in two different camps. It's marketing and growth is what we call them. Mm -hmm. Karen runs growth. I run marketing. Um, marketing is all new customer acquisition. Growth is all, um, customer experience, customer, customer upsell, right. customer marketing, et cetera. So it's really nice in terms of how we divide that. And so my group today is now 11, which blows my mind wow. completely and where we've invested. Basically our strategy has been, where have we seen success? a few times, add, add a few more experts to that area and then start growing a strategy. So we now have four groups within marketing and no surprise, they are content. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they are content, brand, call it retail advertising. Obviously, that's a big important sure. place where we play and design. And so those are our four camps at this point that make up those groups. And really the decision to invest in them came from seeing success. So for example, Brand, brand is a really big deal for us. Um, something that actually I would say we invested in earlier at Owl Labs than we did at HubSpot. Brand was always fueled by our content, but not necessarily, it took a while for it to become its own entity in my experience. And so investing in that and um, PR, but it comes from our success in PR and mm -hmm. now events and other and awards and things like that really, really has been important to us and because we want the credibility that we think is necessary in order to showcase our mission. And now you have historical context to go off of, right? You have mm -hmm. a, at least a couple of years uh, in success in those areas. So how has that changed uh, your ability to not, you know, now you have 11 people, you have, you know, sort of four different pillars uh, in your team. How has that helped in your ability to prioritize, help them prioritize their activities, measure their activities and set goals? Yeah, my favorite thing is that we now can look a little bit further into the future than just the end of our noses. <laughs> <laughs> you can forecast a little bit, yeah. We yeah. can forecast, um, which is really bringing new and better opportunities. So, for example, our brand team really focused on events. We're going to be doing events now, and we're already putting together our 2020 calendar. 
And you have to in order to Mm. take advantage of events effectively. And before, we didn't even have the luxury to think that far ahead because we were so in survival mode in the moment. And so that's really, really good. And I would say the content engine is now paying back. So we know know that there's a certain amount of traffic that we can expect. And now it's just a matter of building upon that. Um, We now have really good data about paid acquisition and where to invest and where to optimize and... Um, where do we think we can get the best return? Where do we want to do more and more experiments? And so that engine is extremely strong and has allowed us to actually put quite a bit of money into it and mm-hmm. invest quite a bit. But we have we have the data that shows it's worth it. Um, so that's really, really great. And so what's I working think, well in terms of, of paid, like which channels have you found besides the sponsored newsletters? Yeah. So it is fun. Being e-com is fun. I have learned so much about Amazon, the Amazon (laughs) machine. Oh my goodness. It is fascinating. And so we, we've gotten really good in terms of how we optimize the Amazon channels and their different advertising resources and whatnot. I mean, I could do a whole episode on the Amazon mechanics if you ever wanted to. But anyway, that's an example. It's still speaking broadly to an opportunity there. And to talk to others, because that might not be as relevant for those in the SaaS world, obviously. Um, Google search, branded search. We use Google Shopping, um, uh, channels like that. And then we obviously do a mix uh, between direct-to-sale, meaning like um, advertising for those who are in market for video conferencing products, or our content promotion. And so we get to play with both and optimize for both, which is really fun too. And so we're seeing good ex- good success and we're also seeing that, I mean, it really goes back to what I've always believed. It's the strength in your content that makes even those types of advertising possibilities sure. possible. So how often are you, uh, you know, do you huddle with the team or, or even individually to review, you know, progress in specific areas and uh, because you're still small enough where you can be, you know, you can be lean and, and, and make adjustments. Um, uh, so, so how often, like, what does that look like? How often do you meet as a group? Like, how, how does that, um, you know, how does that sort of adjustment look like in terms of like, how is everything performing? How's content? How's the paid look this month? Um, what does that whole process look like? Yeah. So we, so first each of the four groups, those four groups I mentioned before, content, brand, uh, retail, advertising, and design, each has a leader. Um, that leads that group and each group is like two to three people and um, they meet independently to talk about what they're doing day to day etc they meet probably weekly if not daily I mean we're so with like things like slack and video calls we're able to talk all the time Um, and then as a full team we get together every month excuse me well every month is true but also every week and every week what we prepare is we have our, our I call it our KPI snapshot and we actually have targets that um, each group is accountable for. And they'll change based off of whatever our priorities are at the moment. And they'll have a target that they want to get by the end of the month and basically month to date what they want to achieve by that meeting time. And so we'll do that as a way to like, it's like the check engines, you know what I mean? Oh, I right, love yeah. the check engine. Great, like, yeah. like how we're doing is this, if you're behind, do you expect that because the big launch is happening next week or whatever? So we'll go through that. Sure. And then each team will give a, a snapshot of priorities happening right now that will then trigger natural discussion. So it's perfect. So that happens every week. And then every month, I encourage everyone to do their monthly report, not to do a rote metrics exercise, but to ask themselves really thoughtful questions that gets them to 
question then their own success, their own failures, experiments, etc. Why things are happening. Right, right. And that exactly. And that happens on a monthly basis, um, which is, is really great fodder and it helps both for accountability, but as well as is the way to learn. Um, and I love I mean, I've always loved in my memory from HubSpot having decks that go back however long before. Right, sure. And, um, and being able to have that historic info. So that's really cool, too. So those are the those are the ways we're working together. I prefer to actually take as much of a backseat as I can. I let data and metrics and KPIs be the tool to give my team freedom because I mean- How do you mean? So the worst thing you can do to someone who uh, excels, lives to problem solve, is an achiever, the worst thing you can do for those people is solve their problems. That's literally <laughs> how you defeat and destroy a talented individual. And so I understand that thoroughly. And so in that case, what I like to do is say, okay, great. I'll take Sophia, for example. Um, she's uh, the woman who runs our content group. And I'll work with her. I was like, all right, what do you project as your your um, your non-paid and your organic search traffic lift for this month, this quarter, whatever? She'll tell me what she wants. We'll like negotiate and where we want to land. And then she's free. She's free to make the strategic decisions that she thinks is best based on her expertise because we both have agreed where she's going to land. And I can be a sounding board. I can give feedback. I can weigh in or whether I do it on my own or she asks for it. But at the end of the day, I want her to be in charge of those decisions. Um, And it's those metrics and KPIs that we've set that give us the freedom to do so because it's black and white. She either met it or she didn't. And she either knows why or we work together to know why. And I I find that very important. It gives you a a good idea of where to who to support, right? Where to prioritize your time, right? Who to meet with and when you can when you can base it off that right like how how people are progressing or teams are progressing towards certain goals or KPIs in both uh, ways if someone is excelling and they're at 110% of goal every moment it's like how do we get more what are you doing <laughs> right right yeah. How, yeah how do we spread this <laughs> exactly so it can go it can go any way speaking of measurement uh, you're in a unique position well the whole company is uh in that you have a hardware right you have a hardware product the actual device that that uh people buy to um to actually host their meetings in, in whatever room they're in and then you have the software so how do you measure usage yeah so we are a wi-fi connected device is which what gives us that ability and so um what we do is we can both report back to our customers um, as well as collect ourselves that's where the transparency comes into play we can say all right this is this is how frequently the meeting owl is used um these are the days in which you've used it the most (laughs) and so we we measure usage based off of of basically meetings basically meetings and meeting frequency meeting length um, et cetera. And so we can track that, which is really important to us because I mean, it's great to sell a product, but you really want to sell a product that people love and use frequently and find value. And so that's what usage looks like for us. Um, so is there a report coming at some point where you say like, here are the days where people have meetings the most, or like, here's the days where 30 minute meetings happen most here. Here's the time of day that most meetings happen. Uh, I would I, assume you have so much data, right? That you could, you could really shed a light on, on where the meeting, uh, bloat is happening. <laughs> we could. We um we did do our end of year review, our 2018 end of year review, 
And we reported on some of those things. Some of them you just thought of right now on the spot that I will absolutely copy. Um, <laughs> but some of those things we reported on for that reason. We obviously, we want to be really thoughtful for what it's worth because, I mean, we're used to smart technology in the home, but we're just getting used to it in the business. Yeah, people are kind and of still creeped out by it in ways too, yeah. Well, I think people have been very open to it, but we also just want to look it right in the face and say, we care about your privacy and right. we want any any data that we have access to, we give back to our customers. Okay. So that's so they know exactly what's being used. So anyway, the long of the short of it is we just want to be really thoughtful that we're using that in a in a helpful, useful way. And it is interesting. And then of course, if there's any data that we can use, see their create content and then educate the market i mean by yeah. all means that it that's seems a like win. there's something interesting there to even inform companies about it's almost like your your uh your energy usage at home right like sure. these reports that you get it would almost be interesting to see that from a company like here's here's how your team you know here's how often they're meeting here's the duration of the average meeting here's the times a day um i, I would be interested to see that at, at, at our own company just see like oh are there what are we meeting too much is there are there things that could be uh you know, uh, taken offline or offloaded in some way. But uh, it seems like, yeah, you're probably sitting on a goldmine of of potential content. Yeah, Um, for sure. Similar to the state of remote report that that you guys put out. Yeah, for sure. Um, What were, like, earlier, you mentioned the inside.com. What were some maybe adjustments that you and the team made early on that helped. So, so when when I say adjustments, like responses to maybe some signals you were seeing, something that really worked, something that wasn't working that you changed. Was there anything or three things or whatever it was that you remember working really well in terms of making an adjustment? Sure, um, working really, really well. We talked about content. We talked about paid advertising, brand. Um, I can tell you something that didn't work very well. So one yeah. thing that we've been going back and forth on. Um, are the, is the idea of podcast podcasts, very relevant here and podcast advertising. And it's tricky. Uh, we decided to sponsor a really great podcast. I'm not going to mention it because this ended up being a failure and I want to make sure they still get the podcast revenue they deserve. <laughs> um, but for us, uh, we ended up sponsoring this podcast and, um, we received absolutely no obvious benefit from this. And now for the smart marketers listening, there's two ways to look at this. One, you could say, well, do you actually think that the brand value you get from sponsoring a podcast is going to be something you can directly attribute to like your sales? Um, and we actually tried really hard. We had a discount code. We had all, we had a specific URL, everything. Right. We could everything really do. Yeah. Made all the right decisions. Yeah. That to best our ability because we had to, and no evidence. I remember we had a very specific URL and discount code, and it was used zero times out of the course of the, I don't know, my God, 60 days we were running this campaign, and we spent some serious money. I remember uh, 8K is a lot of money, especially to us at right. that point. Yeah, when we're you're like, in survival mode, yeah. Oh, yeah, it was my great <laughs> 8K mistake. <laughs> and so anyway, the long and the short of it there, we called that a failure, and then but then I thought about it and I said, it's not a failure in the campaign. It's a failure in the priority at the time. And right. so I do believe that when you're in short-term mode, survival mode, you likely have to ensure you're only investing in things you can directly attribute back because every dollar counts. And right. so it was the wrong strategy for that moment. We we couldn't just invest in bread. However, when you're getting to a point where you're a little bit larger, you have enough 
um, predictability and you have strong conviction on the concept of just building your brand with an audience that you think is targeted and you're okay with not attributing it back. That's the right stage of your business to invest in that. So I think they'll get to a point where we might do more of those brand building advertising opportunities with the right audiences when we're at a point where we are okay not being able to measure it effectively anymore. Um, well, so that was a big lesson. What that. was the response uh, in terms of like, what did you do next? Like, did you have, like, you obviously have all this insight now, you're removed from it. At the time, did you have that same response? Was like, we need to invest more in things that we can directly, if there was anything at that time, we can directly attribute to sales. And if so, if you did have that sort of response, what what did that reinvestment look like? Where did you reallocate that, that time and resource? Yeah, so in that specific case, um, we... We still wanted to dabble in our paid channels and now it's a full it's a full group. And that's when we really nailed on the, the newsletters being right. more effective. Um, because in that case, it's still you're still pay to play, but with a targeted audience, but it's in a format in which you you read something, you promote some content, you can click, you can clack, you there's can track the clicks. Click. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. There's like there's a path. There's a path you can attribute to the the promotion. And so we tried a few of those and some of those did great. Some of those did terribly. Um, but at least then we had a clear metric that we can gauge to decide if we wanted to continue invested in or not. And so that, that was, that's how we used funds like that. When we knew we wanted to do some sort of paid promotion of some variety, we said at this stage in our business, we can only do those. We can directly attribute to sales, um, Later, perhaps we can think about brand building when that's an investment we can we can afford right. um, based off of the stage of our growth. Right. Anything obvious to you now? Um, challenges in in marketing and selling hardware and software, as opposed to to just software, um, that maybe other marketers wouldn't know about or would be surprised to learn. Sure, I have a few thoughts. So one, um, I mean, in terms of your revenue modeling, SaaS has it has it real good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no production because, costs. Yeah, well, <laughs> no, totally. I mean, in two different ways. From your revenue modeling, I mean, assuming you're do, I'm just going to give you the benefit of the doubt that you're doing a good job taking care of your customers and they're sticking around for a long time. So your revenue model is really predictable. So that's wonderful. In our world, yes, we have repeat sales, and that's a big part of our business, but new customer acquisition is huge because we realize the revenue at point of sale. So anyway, so it means that growth growth is different for us. That's one. Two, um, I mean, I can think back to our product launch um, back in 2017. Oh, my goodness. It's almost good that I was so naive. I think it served me well because I remember uh, we launched the product in June 2017, the first meeting owl um, launch that we did. And uh, what we what I remember is when um, we were coming to market and uh, I was talking to our, our CEO at the time, Max McKeeve, and it was like, all right, inventory plan. These are our projections. I was like, yeah, this is what we're going to do, so on and so forth. Anyway, long and short of it, we missed our, our inventory production timeline by like four weeks. Mm. And I didn't even think that would be possible because everything we were doing was completely right. It's just luck of the draw when you're that early of a company. It's just right. luck of the draw. And so anyway, long of the short of it, um, I had all these people that had bought the product and were expecting it and weren't going to get it for a while. In a and world I'm, of two-day shipping. Yeah. <laughs> 
and I thought, <laughs> what the heck I can, what can I do? And the only thing I could do is just eat our, eat our mistake and look at head on and deal with it. And so remember emailing everybody and we sent everyone cupcakes and we said, look, we know you were waiting for your <laughs> Cup- meeting owl. Cupcakes and fixes meet- everything. Yeah. <laughs> it better, but here's some cupcakes in the meantime, because we're sorry. And actually that ends up being one of our most successful cohorts. Um, so that is, I guess you would never or rarely experience that in the SaaS software world because I mean, God forbid something's wrong with your software. Your, your engineers would probably just pull a few all nighters and fix the issue and it's done in a few days. I had to wait four weeks. There's a lot of things out of your control, right? Um, (laughs) So that's a big deal. Another big deal is forecasting matters. So you could say, oh, wouldn't it be great if you exceeded your sales by, I don't know, 4,000% in hardware? No, no, it's <laughs> not. You, someone wouldn't see that as a successful marketing launch. Someone would see that as really bad forecasting. <laughs> right, right. Um, so that really matters there. Harder um, to keep up with demand in that case, yeah. Exactly. So that's really been really important. Being accurate is more important. Fulfillment um, issues are things that most SaaS marketers don't have to think about. Yeah. <laughs> I will say what's been fun is getting access to marketing channels that you wouldn't otherwise, like learning Amazon. Oh sure, my goodness. Yeah. It's been so fun to learn Amazon. Um, uh, discounting uh, has been something we've learned a lot about. Uh, we uh, We take the approach that how can we use discounting in a way that doesn't undervalue our product because we are priced extremely well. And, but, but how can you get some of the promotion mechanics? So we've thought about like bundles and like volume discounts and things like that. So that's been really fun to play with that are a little bit different that you can do in the e-com side. But the number one reason that it is fun live being a marketer and living in an e-com world (laughs) is you are a marketer driving revenue directly. And that is powerful. Right. Yeah. (laughs) It is, powerful to be someone that's driving revenue directly so i like that a lot too. wield the bigger stick right yeah yeah um so i want to i want to end with this one and that's what do you what's what would you say is the most ambitious goal or challenge that you have right now you and your team have in terms of marketing the most ambitious goal i would say where we just hit the most ambition goal or biggest challenge in front of us it could be How either you- one it could be either one Ooh. Well, I started thinking challenge and the challenge in front of us is we're at a point in which we built a really good machine and now we need to break it intentionally so we can like one up, two up, three up ourselves. So that's the way I'm thinking about and going into like 2020 soon, obviously Q4 around the corner in 2020 soon. So that's one thing I'm thinking about. Um, And I think um, uh, other things that we have to think about are are new sales channels that we want to try, new strategies. It's just really easy to have it good and be like, let's cruise. But I just know and use my experience from HubSpot, you have to shake things up because that's where the innovation comes. So that's what I, that's what's been on my mind. And then I think from there, I mean, we've grown the team. What? So three was the team for two years to 11, thinking about, well, where are those next investments going to be? And how do we stay lean and nimble while we do that? So that's another thing that I'm thinking about, too. This has been a lot of fun, Repcore. Here, you've been super transparent, and uh, this is—it's been a lot of fun here in the journey. Partly because obviously the product is different, but a lot of uh, a lot of similarities between like the stages DataBox was at at the time in 2017 and where Owl Labs was. So it's fun to hear uh, your approach and, and a different approach to things. So this was a lot of fun. Thanks for coming on and sharing. Absolutely, it was a blast.
Thanks so much for listening. If you found this episode valuable, check out our other episodes or subscribe to get new ones. If you want to support the show, we'd love for you to leave a review or share it with someone. And if you want a tool to help you track and improve your business performance, try Databox free at databox.com.